Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 6th, 2017. This is episode 2126 of the Survival Podcast. That's right, 2126 today. And I have one of my favorite people uh, that will be on the air with us in just a minute. Uh, this is a person who I've actually been able to meet face-to-face -face once in my life and shake hands, but he's one of my greatest teachers. Of course, I'm talking about Jeff Lawton. We're going to have kind of a general roundtable discussion about Jeff's work in permaculture and permaculture as a whole today, discussing what permaculture is, why you'd want to do it, how it's impacting the world, and, and why it's a, the most sane course of action that you can take in your life. I honestly believe that. We'll have Jeff on in just a bit to do that, just just a bit to do just that. But uh, before I get Jeff on, let's take a look at the year in history. We are up to the year 78 this year, and we have Domitian, the forgotten son from David Verne. Vespian's younger son, of course Vespian is the existing emperor of Rome. Vespian's younger son, Domitian, has been ignored almost completely by his father. Vespian spent the time to groom Titus for command, while leaving Domitian at home. When Domitian was six, his mother and sister died, and he went to live with his uncle. Vespian ensured he got a good quality education, but seemed not to care about him. As Domitian grew older, he spent more time reading in solitude, which was seen as incredibly un-Roman. He was 18 and living in Rome when the chaos of 69 AD engulfed the empire. His opinion on politics was influenced by witnessing Nero's final days of madness and the Senate's willingness to declare loyalty to whomever had the largest army. During Vespian's reign, he had been regulated to a ceremonial role, and during the triumph celebrated by Vespian and Titus for their victory of the Jews, Domitian was placed in the back with distant family members. Domitian tried to gain any sort of political or military appointment, but only gained the appointment of the ceremonial role of the emperor's representative to the Senate. My take by David Verne. Thespian probably continued ignoring Domitian since he believed his line was secure through Titus. Titus did make an attempt to include his brother in public office. Since he wasn't married and had no heirs, Domitian's experiences with the Senate were enough to convince him that they were a useless speed bump in managing the empire. He didn't agree with the imperial policy up to this point of making a show of asking the Senate before issuing edicts or declaring war. So he's not the favored son. His his older brother Titus is. So the old man just kind of ignores him and puts him in a ceremonial role. And doesn't really have nothing to do with him because he's not going to be emperor someday. What we'll see in the future, what we'll see in the future is it's probably not a good idea to do that with anybody in a royal line in something like an empire. And you'll see what I mean when we get there. Anyway, um, with that, before we get Jeff on the line, let me remind you really quick that one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast is by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get discounts on a lot of really great stuff. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or active duty, uh, or, I'm sorry, active duty or... Uh, prior service, or if you're a first responder, active duty or uh, prior service, uh, of course that's a uh, firefighter, uh, police officer, you name it, um, paramedic, EMT, any of that stuff. If you if you qualify as that, you get a discount on it to get an even better deal on an already great product. 
just email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line if you want that additional discount. Tell me one or two sentences about your service. Everybody else, it's really a good deal. If you feel this show is worth 18 cents an episode, consider joining and they get all your money back and more by taking advantage of the discounts that I've put together for you and all the other great extensive content that's available there. With that, it is my great pleasure to introduce, again, a, a gentleman that I consider to be one of my greatest teachers and mentors and uh, a really good friend and a great guy doing great things around the world. With that, hey, Jeff, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here again. Huh? You know, Jeff, a lot of people know who you are because you've been on the show so many times and because of just who you are. You're probably the biggest name in permaculture. And uh, you answer questions for expert counsel and stuff like that. But we get new people all the time. So for people that maybe are just discovering permaculture and Jeff Lawton, can you tell people who you are and, and what you do and how you got into doing it? Okay. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the managing director of the Permaculture Research Institute here in Australia. Um, uh, but I'm a, a, a permaculture teacher. I uh, work all over the world. Um, I'm a permaculture designer and consultant, um, but I, I, I manage many different things with online courses, um, online um, free websites for people to get introduced to permaculture through many videos, uh, many Facebook pages. I'm really someone who tries to connect together the knowledge to the people en masse. Um, I work a lot on aid work. I'm connected to many aid organizations. I'm a director of a, uh, an aid organization here in Australia that works internationally. Um, so um, I cover many fields, um, but um, primarily I, I, when I'm in Australia, I'm working on the ground at Zaytuna Farm, and zaytunafarm.com is a website where people can see what I do. Um, Zaytuna Farm is a 66-acre property with a really diverse set of demonstration systems of permaculture so people can see which aspect of permaculture they like to get engaged in and it has an education center and a demonst full demonstration of many, many systems. Um, it's completely off-grid. It has its own uh, waste systems, its own compost toilets, its reed bed grey water systems. No I mean, deal. we milk cows, we run a small beef herd, we have many poultry, we have aquaculture systems, we have a commercial kitchen, education centre. We serve 30,000 meals a year from our kitchen to our students, our interns and our visitors. So um, I live the permaculture life in a in a pretty diverse and, and uh, exciting and busy busy way and that's what I choose to do and so I didn't see back there but uh, uh, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm really trying to replicate my action with other people and, and and I feel very lucky that I've been able to achieve that we've we've produced some incredible incredible students who are out there doing the most amazing work so I'm that that more than anything is uh, what I what I feel like I, I need to do and I love to do And Jeff, for the, the, the people that are new to the concept of permaculture that aren't really sure what permaculture is, was it gardening? You know, sometimes people just feel like it's like you talk to them about permaculture and say, oh, so it's like organic gardening. Like, no, it's, it's, it's much broader than that. Could you kind of explain how you respond to, to the question, well, what exactly is permaculture? Yeah. Well, <laughs> the founder of permaculture, my teacher, Bill Mollison, made the classic statement once that, Permaculture is uh, a revolution 
been disguised as gardening. Um, but uh, yeah, most people see it initially at that first need of humanity, food and health and, 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 and well-being. But it's a design science. And um, it, ha it covers way more than just how we produce our food on a smaller, larger scale. Um, it goes right out to how we protect the global environments without, you know, and reducing or diminishing the pressure on the global environment. So it, it's a design system that um, creates abundant ecologies globally by supplying our needs in, in every form, um, well, every ethical form. Right, so um, so let's talk about our basic needs. It, it's how we uh, deal with our waste systems, how we deal with pollution, so it's a, a beneficial rather than a, a detrimental thing. It's design our communities, how we design our toilets, how we design our, our electricity, our transport systems, as well as our food supply and our fiber and our main materials. It's how we interact with the living world in a way that's very, very beneficial to the life on Earth while living a wonderful, healthy, uh, entertaining life. So it, it, it's a very large subject. And you could quickly say it's a design science, but it's a design science that's based in ethics and, and, and we are continuously evolving more and more efficient systems. And we always will be. We always will be. Yeah, I've, I've always struggled a little bit with explaining it too with, you know, kind of saying my, my way of always approaching it is I always end up leading with, my favorite way to describe it, but I don't know that it's the best way to describe it because a lot of times I get that sideways look or that, oh, that's too complicated look, is I always say it's a design science. And then try to explain you know, what that means and what it's the design science of, which I feel that permaculture in many ways is the design science of everything that supports people and humanity and life on Earth and natural systems, the integration of humans and natural systems because I think one of the problems is we have come to believe that like there's natural systems and then there's humans. We're native to this place too. We're native to this planet. We are part of these natural systems. So we need to be integrated with them. And to me, that's kind of how permaculture really works is allowing us to integrate with natural systems as part of the natural system. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah Bill was great at being very concise. And I, I remember him once saying you know, to me, he said, look, what are we about? We're about... Science and ethics. So when you you know go from it's a design science, you know just two words. You know what are we about? We're about science and ethics. Majorly the life sciences, but not completely hard sciences as well. And through design, we facilitate more life-rich events, and we let our systems demonstrate their evolutions because we accept the fact we'll never fully understand them, but we can work with them in an ethical way, and and we just check. The living systems and their abundance, soil creation, species diversity, uh, oh, water qualities, um, and, 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 and we just keep a check on it. If it's going in the right direction, we're obviously doing something right. We uh, indeed. I mean, it's amazing how you see patterns repeat and understand how these principles are kind of universal in, in, in strange ways, so to say. Um, when you talk about observing that natural system, seeing the feedbacks from it, and that being your indicator. So this might sound completely unrelated, Jeff, but in my 
office, I have a couple of big fish tanks, and one of them is right where I can see it. I look at it while I'm recording. Uh, it's just a beautiful tank with live plants and fish swimming around in it. And I have people that have asked me about getting into aquariums and, you know, testing equipment and, you know, doing all these little vials and stuff and, and keeping the water balance and how hard that is. And I'm like, I don't really do any of it. And then they're like, well, what do you mean you don't do any of it? I'm like, well, I, I have a, a fish in there that's very sensitive to any swings in the water that go out of where the water quality should be. A little fish called a red tail shark. So this little red tail shark swims around in there, and he is supposed to be um, a black fish with a red fin. And I mean, when I say black, he's supposed to be black, dark jet black, and a red fin. And when water quality suffers with with red tail sharks or rainbow sharks, either one, very similar. They're actually not even a shark; they're actually a minnow. But when water quality begins to suffer just a little bit. They go from being a black and red fish to more of a gray and pinkish colored fish. And simply by looking at the color of that fish, I know that I need to do some tank maintenance. And that's the only way I actually you know, decide when I need to do a water change or anything with, like that with my tank. And it's because that fish can respond and show me what's going on better than any kind of test file or anything else I could do if, if that really makes any sense. Okay. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I've just got to just got to relate a little story here in relation to that same analogy of your red tail shark. I, yeah, I I used to um, work in Louisiana. I had a contract for um, the um, Army Corps of Engineers working on the redesign of an Army ammunition manufacturing plant, a large base, into an industrial an eco industrial park. So we were working with all kinds of consultants. One of the consultants, Paul Zabriskie, worked for John Todd Living Machines. Now, those are the famous people that um, were really the, the, the leading um, cutting edge of biological cleaning systems. Now, they're quite common today, but they had very sophisticated systems that could clean up any kind of industrial um, toxins, any kind of pollutants, and, and, and also set up all kinds of um, sewerage cleaning systems with reed beds and aquatic plants and aquatic systems. Um, but Paul told me that you there was no gauges that were accurate enough to keep up with the water snails. Hmm. The water snails would actually leave the water. They would start to climb out of these reed beds and aquatic tanks that were cleaning out all the toxins. They would, they would climb out of the water two to three hours before any gauge would respond. The best gauges they had, the best technology they had, couldn't beat the water snails in picking up a toxic overload that was coming in. Because at that point, they'd reroute and extend the, 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 the pathway so that it could keep the toxins being cleaned. But they used to watch the water snails. And as soon as they watched the water snails, they knew that that was the most accurate gauge. So life systems are often a lot more accurate than our technology, especially when it comes to aquatics. So, so those snails were your red tail shark? Yep, that was it. That's and, and, very cool. And there's many things like that. There's many biological effects that we can't, we can't beat with technology at this stage, and there's probably no point. We've already got the indicators we need. Very cool, man. So can you tell us, like, I know one of the questions you answered recently, you were in Jordan. I know you're trying to to stay home, and, 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 and I think you're doing like four PDCs on the ground a year now, but you're still traveling quite a bit. Is that with aid work? or Mostly I travel with aid work, yeah. 
and and most of my consultancy I'm given to my uh, interns, my students, my trained up project managers. Every now and again, I get the type of job comes up where I I, I just feel like I'm the one who has to go and do it, or they for some reason they 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 particularly want me, and it and it's for some particularly difficult or extensive job, but mostly I'm directing other people. Um, aid work is one of my passions, um, and um, we're at last getting a really good effect. There are a few aid organizations now are really catching on to what needs to happen with sustainability. To me, it's the best form of aid because the problem with most aid organizations, I think their heart's in the right place, but if you just take stuff and give it to people who don't have stuff, and then you go away. Well, once the stuff runs out, they're not just back to where they started. They're worse because you've now made them dependent upon the stuff you're giving them. So if that stuff goes away, now they're worse off. Where if you come in with a permaculture approach and you teach them how to understand the resources that they have on the ground there, then they become independent instead of interdependent, if that makes sense. That's right, and, and, and you will find that most aid um, starts off with a big input of, of funding and, and they build big infrastructure and it looks the very best on the first day it opens and it goes gradually downhill from there and then it exponentially drops off. Where our projects start small, almost insignificant, and grow and they, they kind of cross over at a certain point when they grow and grow and get larger and better and better and better. And, and the interest comes in at the mid-range. And suddenly the locals realize, oh, you're different. You, you're, getting, you're getting busier, you're getting larger, you're getting more stable over time. So they don't jump in quickly. They watch and they, and, and they realize that we, we're, we're actually going in the opposite direction. We're almost insignificant as we start. And then we grow and grow, and it gets more and more obvious that we're doing something quite different. And then there's an engagement point. Now, we're trying to speed that time frame up. usually takes three years. Two to three years is the fastest you can usually do it, often five. I've been working in Jordan now for, uh, in the Middle East for 17 years in the same region. But the engagement is exponentially increasing. Uh, we're in multiple schools. We've run multiple school garden awards. We've got more and more local tradesmen engaging in what we do, building grey water systems, recycling water, setting up composting systems, setting up small animal poultry compost systems, combinations of, of, of forestry. I mean, we don't look a lot different to chemical agriculture. Um, in fact, we probably look less productive than chemical ag agriculture initially, but in those stressed dryland environments, you see the chemical and industrial agriculture come and go very quick. Well, we get better over time. So it takes a little bit of time for people to recognize the difference. And then they go, we, we should, this, this, is, this is really something that's, that's going to go on you know, indefinitely. Uh, and, and there's a buy-in point. And that's a beautiful point to get to. Now, we're, now we can reference those things. We have, we have the experience. You know, Jeff, like my background was sales and marketing before I, I got into what I do now. And I used to use this analogy training salespeople and it, saying that you want to emulate a farmer, not a miner, because the, the salesperson that emulates a miner takes everything they can get from their clients as fast as they can. And eventually they burn that out. They don't cultivate relationships and they don't build a, a, a stronger 
sales territory over time. And I realized as I got into this that the, the flaw in my analogy was that farming today has become very much like mining. And, and what you're talking about is restoring farming as one piece of what permaculture is to actual farming. If you're actually farming, then the ecosystem should get stronger. But what we've done with modern ag is we've gone to the, the farmer has become the modern miner. They're mining the land as quickly as possible. And then when, when the land can't support things anymore, then we mine something somewhere else. We bring in phosphates, et cetera, and dump it on there because we've, we've made the land fallow. And it, it's, it's, this, it's, it's really a return to the, the true type of farming I was talking about in my training. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's not really obvious initially that you're, um, you've got any advantage at all. So the advantage is definitely over time. Uh, um, ridiculous things start to happen in these stressed environments um, that don't even make sense. But um, in Jordan, we've had frogs turn up. And when you look around the landscape, there isn't anything you think a frog could hop through because it's completely dry and barren. Uh, um, and um, numbers of birds, of course, but uh, chameleons have turned up, chameleon lizards. These, these. Really? And, and we've got a family. A hedgehog turned up and has a family. Tortoises have turned up. These things are not fast-moving animals. And when you look around <laughs> the landscape, there's just no way I can imagine how they arrive. But on this tiny little project, just less than an acre in size, you magnetize wildlife. It, it's, it's almost like a miracle. But we filmed all this. Um, it's, it's just one part of the ecological picture of stability, um, starting off with really devastated landscape and ending up in a, in a productive ecosystem landscape. Um, and, and local lo, lo, local people with better heritage kind of look at us putting mulch on the ground like we're sort of spreading money on the ground it's kind of like well that would feed animals why would you spread it on the ground um why would you bring manure and put it into a chicken pen mix it with mulch and food scraps and come up with a product called compost that kind of looks like manure in the first place <laughs> Uh, and, 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 and it takes a little bit of, of, of quiet observation, which is their style, to realize, hold on a second, there's something going on here. A, a, a year or two later, we've got buy-in by traditional you know, um, leaders of the area who, who have real, real nomadic heritage and are not traditionally gardeners at all. Um, but they realize this is, this, you are, com they're more or less saying to us, you are completely different to other aid organizations. You know, you, 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 you know, you, you continuously get more stable. You continuously add more features. You continuously get more local people working with you. Um, kind of what is going on? What, 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 you know, what, how do you, how are you doing this? Um, you're, you're creating hope. Um, and, and hope is a wonderful thing to give people. Absolutely. Um, it makes me almost think of like uh, the, the initial settling of this, this continent and the natives showing, you know, Europeans like to bury a fish and they're like, well, why, why wouldn't you just eat the fish? Like they, they had no, and I'm not saying that's a, a, actually a good model to emulate, but I'm saying they had no context for why anybody would do this. And it, it's very much the same thing. And it's that pattern recognition of the human species that when something's foreign to us, it takes some level of evidence, which actually is a good thing in the long run, for us to become convinced in it. We don't jump all into something that doesn't make sense, but when it, when it shows itself for what it is, generally intelligent people anyway go, ah, there's something here. Um, so that's, that, that's you know, something I think that's common in humanity. 
and it's, it's great to see that happening with permaculture. Um, as, as you've you have tried though to do less travel, you've you've been very sought after as a consultant, uh, a teacher, and a consultant. You've you've now kind of taken what you started a few years ago with online permaculture education and taken it to another level with something called Permaculture Circle that people can learn more about at jefflawtononline.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. But can you, you tell us what that is and how it differs from just getting a PDC? Because I know you, you poured your heart, soul, and guts and your blood, sweat, and tears into this thing. So, so tell us about it. Well, um, it goes back. Again, Bill, Bill once said that, you know, if we ever get permaculture on television 24-7 as, as an education system, um, we'd really make a difference and we might get to that tipping point where everybody realizes this is the way we have to behave and, and this is the most important way to uh, provide all our needs. But at that time, there wasn't such a thing as the Internet. So that statement was pre-Internet. And, of course, the Internet now is 24-7. So um, I cautiously engaged in um, an online uh, education system, a, a permaculture design certificate course online. And um, it was more or less, my version one was more or less just a recording of me teaching face-to-face here at Zaytuna Farm. And, and it was enormously successful. Um, but then... I never gauged my success on just, okay, I've got a lot of students, um, but what do they do uh, after they've taken the course? Now, the first indicator I get of that is their design exercise, and I was extremely shocked that my first students online came up with designs in their design exercise at the end of the course that were much better than I've ever seen before. In fact, 20% were incredible. They were better than anything I've ever done myself. So this is really working. So I, I didn't know whether it was a fluke. I ran three of those courses. They all came up with the same result. So then I decided, right, let's do version two. Let's do what I always wanted to do. And that was really extend the course to full knowledge of um, permaculture as it is written in Bill Mollison's Permaculture Designer's Manual. I got permission from Bill um, to do this and, and sort of translate the manual into what I think he's trying to say. Now, Bill passed on just uh, over a year ago, um, a year ago, September. And, uh, and, and that sort of, that, that, that made me go even more intensely into this, that I needed to sort of translate the knowledge of, of our teacher, of the, 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 the founder of permaculture, um, of, of the, not just the concept, but the, the movement. Um, Bill was the one who started the, the, the teaching extending worldwide through, through the students base. And, um, I took every single paragraph that in, in the manual, and I, I translated it into, into what I think he's trying to say and how it relates to this point in history, um, most of it anyway, because a lot of it is um, scientific justification of permaculture as it was written in the, in the 80s. Now, in, in, in modern times, that isn't necessarily the language that people need to hear so much. Um, and I didn't translate any of his stories, 
that's another scenario. I've got my own stories. Um, but I translated it into um, uh, recorded lessons in a film studio straight to camera. So it's just personal straight to camera. I used a blackboard because I like chalk and it looks nice behind you instead of a white shiny board and, and texture. So it's nice color graphics. And then I put in B-roll, beautiful high definition footage all the way through the lectures. So you're seeing it, 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 it cut to chickens if I'm talking about chickens or solar panels if I'm talking about solar energy or reed beds if I'm talking about biological cleaning systems or landscapes or any of these things. And then I run a, a um, very good um, online education software married to the best forum I can possibly find and so that students can ask questions. It's not running live time. They can, they can watch it at their leisure. And then they go through all the lectures. They ask questions. I have assistant teachers that answer questions in the forum plus select questions to go through to a Q&A. I answer the Q&A in direct-to-camera as well. So every week I run a Q&A. Every week I answer questions from the previous week's lessons. And each week, over 24 weeks, I section out the course and give you plenty of time to take in the information, give you plenty of reference material, give you bulk connections to all the data you need. So it's much larger than any face-to-face -face course in information. It's extremely thorough. I, no, I, I could not teach the course face-to-face -face at that level of information. I'm sitting here thinking while you're saying that, going, it's impossible. It, no. Having taught myself, there's no way you can do all of that in a, a two-week PDC. It, it can't no. be done. I don't think anybody has ever caught, taught this much information. And, and so you get it permanently as a download. And then you get extra information on top of it. I'm just using the Internet for all its skills. And then I, I, I created something rather unusual. I created the water cooler conversation on Facebook. I created a Facebook page for that course. And that became, in, I think it's the most active perm, uh, permaculture Facebook page on the planet, but it's only inside the course. I was very shocked at what happened on the, in, on the Facebook page. So, um, so people have, a, have, have their casual conversation, which is way more than casual. The information in there is shocking. It really shocked me. Um, and then they have the formal course, and then we have the added information. Now, then I added, I listened to my students. They wanted different functions in the website, so I, we gave it to them. I listened to, they wanted to test their knowledge, so I made learning tests, very good fun learning tests for each chapter. And you have to get 70% right before the next chapter opens in the next PDC, in the next design course. And, and they like that. They, want to, they don't want to be tested on grades or percentage. They just want to test themselves. So if they don't get the answers right, they can go back and review the chapter. And, 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 and people literally told us what they wanted, and, and we gave it to them. We've worked very, very hard. Um, we gave a glossary of terms, of all the permaculture terms that don't necessarily translate easily. Um, we gave a summary of every lecture and the key takeaway points. We made a giant mind map of the whole manual for people to have um, and open from one page on a cloud-based software that anybody can open. Um, and we continue to give and give and give and give more information. It is, Jack, it's bizarre what we've given, um, but it will, I, 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 you know, I'm 63 
this in a few days' time. Um, I, I wanted to make sure I got as much out there to the world as possible um, with, as, with the highest technology, the highest um, film, film clarity. We're shooting, shooting in, in 4K now. Um, we're even shooting higher than 4K resolution. You can't even see it on most screens, but it's there. Um, and and um, the, the amount of footage we have that we haven't released is enormous too. But um, this is the game we've engaged in and we've got the result. The designs are coming in now. And, and, and we created a final design exercise software, which actually you can use as a consultant. It leads you by the hand for all the questions you have to ask a client if you're designing for them or if you want to use it yourself. Everything you need to ask about climate, about landscape, about species selection, about connections. And, 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 and this was, it was an enormous body of work and it still goes on. I have a wonderful team. Very, I'm very, very blessed to have a wonderful team of people working with me. Um, but that's kind of when you know you're doing the right thing. Resources gather around you when you're doing the right thing, and many of them are people. And um, that's a good gauge that we're doing the right thing in, in every way. Um, like, like the frogs and the tortoises and the, and the hedgehogs that turn up on a desert project that you built. It, it, you know, in the human ecosystem, it's the people with skills that come to you and say, I want to help you um, it, at minimum cost or, or for free. I want to help you get that message out there because uh, um, we, 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 as you know, we, we just got to get this message out as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think there's only a, a certain amount of time to really get like a critical mass going in this world because we're watching the industrial side turn to automation so quickly. And if if they get – and I'm not saying automation is bad. We talk about it all the time here. I think there's a lot of automation we can put into permaculture. That's wonderful. But if they can get to a point where it looks like they're meeting the basic needs, I think a lot of people are going to go to sleep on this and, and not realize that extraction – that's still going on. And I am not, I guess I'm not over the top on every little thing that anybody does anywhere that moves a piece of dirt the wrong way upsets me. But I do understand at the, 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 the you know, kind of that mega top level thing, how much we're just extracting from natural systems and the planet itself. And that can't go on uh, sustainably. I, I think the other thing that really hits me there though, is you mentioned bill passing and, we, we lost him recently. We lost another incredible teacher in the world of permaculture, Toby Hemingway. I never had the good fortune to meet Bill. Toby was a personal friend. Um, but, you know, people like yourself, people in, in, in this movement all over, I think we have to give it 100% because none of us know, you know, how, how long we have. It, human, humanity doesn't work that way. Um, Bill had gotten, you know, clearly up there in years. Toby was still quite young. And we need to be doing this because if we don't, then who's going to? Yeah, classic aid workers like Ali Sharif passed away this year as well. Mm. Um, and he was kind of a silent hero. Many people may not have heard of, but an incredible um, aid, aid project warrior that had worked all the way through the Amazon and, 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 and eventually in, in Africa. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm very fit and healthy for my age. But that doesn't, um, that doesn't matter at this point. You never know. So I just wanted to pass every bit I could, as, as far as I could, as fast as I could, and the Internet seemed to be the tool. And um, 
And when you go to the cutting edge of, of the way we can get this to people rapidly, nothing, nothing actually beats that technology. But nothing gives us the news more if you're looking for the right news. Um, of course, there's a lot of rubbish on the Internet, but there's, and there's a lot of time wasting. It, it's, 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 you know, most of us spend more than 60, 60 hours a week online or looking at a screen of some type now. We're all screenagers. But um, if this message magnetizes to the right people and they go into action, um, then we change the ground. Uh, and we change the ground rules when we are the tipping point. And if Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote the famous book, Tipping Point, is correct, we only need 11 to 17 percent. And everything tips. It goes like a fashion or an epidemic or a, or, or, or an, an, a new fad, if you like. But everything tips somewhere around 11 to 18 percent of humanity um, engaging in, in the fact that we've got to think our way out of this. The only thing we can find common about permaculture people, because we are an extremely diverse uh, mix of humanity, that probably the most diverse group of people on earth. We come from every profession, every background, every culture, um, every religious base, and every combination there is. The only thing you'll find common about permaculture people is we're prepared to think our way out of a problem and then take that as a directive to act. We use design, science based in ethics to act. But it starts with not, not being not being um, concerned about thinking our way out of it. We think first and then take directions to act ethically with, with good design science. That's how we are. So um, there's, there's a kind of growing movement that's coming up from everywhere. Um, interestingly, when I look at my um, Google Analytics and I look at my Infusionsoft software of, of my student base in the online courses, and I've taught 40 years worth of students in four courses. So I, it would take me 40 years to mm. teach that many students face-to-face. -face. So I suddenly felt, oh, first course, I'm 10 years in front, second course, and four courses later, I'm 40 years in front of what I could do face-to-face. -face. That was a good, good time jump. But when I look at them, 55% um, of all my students are American. Next, next is Canadian. Next is Australian, then English, then New Zealand, then Indian, and then it's a flat line out across the whole world. So hmm. America has the largest buy-in. Um, of course, your internet and your English speaking, yeah, but, but it, I still find that I, I'm very, very pleased about that because, you, know, you know, America's still the change maker. You know, and, um, and, and everybody's looking to, you know, the, 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 the American lead still. Um, and, um, you know, the situation in America at the present point in time is, I think, turning more people towards permaculture. I, I agree. And I think there's one of the things that's really unique about America is how easy it is to obtain access to land. Um, I hear from young people all the time lamenting how hard it is to get access to land. And I'm like, you know, there are people in other countries that would just plain smack you for, for, for whining about not being able to get access to land. And one thing I always go back to is I remember reading Permaculture 1 for the first time and, and realizing that Bill's entire point was, yeah, you know what, there's great agricultural land. We'd like to change that at some point the way they're doing business too. But permaculture is ideally suited for the land they've either ruined and walked away from or ignored. 
And there is so much land like that out there. And I, I don't think people realize how much be, can be done on such a small piece of it. And I hear people all the time, I wish I had land. Like, well, where do you live? I live in a house. Do you have a yard? Yes. Then you have land. Right? Yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think people realize. Like, when I, then I saw when like, you put out a lot of really great stuff. But I think one of your most impactful DVDs was the Urban Permaculture DVD. Because, first of all, it was just beautifully done. But second of all, you, you start looking at it and going, well, I, I, I don't have any excuse. Like, either I can use my own yard or I can get access to somebody's yard that wants it to be this way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, um, it's incredible what's, what's, what's possible in a small area. Absolutely stunning. I mean, I, I have a student in Sydney that produces... 70 kilos of food, oh, what's that, 150 pounds of food, on a 20-square-meter balcony. I mean, that's, that's 35,000 kilos to the hectare. That, that, that's, agriculture doesn't come anywhere near that because the smaller the area, the more production per square meter or per square foot, however you measure things. So it, it's shocking what can be done in a small area and how much diversity will fit into a small area when you manage it properly. And it really doesn't take a lot of our time. It really doesn't. I'm always asking, how long does this take? And, and most people are looking at, oh, two hours a week and, and on 60 square meters, they're producing an enormous amount of food. And I, I work it back to like, how long is each square meter taking? It's like two minutes a square meter. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's really not a lot of time. Um, but uh, actually, I just did a consultancy the day before yesterday, which is interesting to um, um, tell you about. And it was um, it was on a beachfront North Shore Sydney property. Um, they wanted me to go particularly. Now, <clears throat> that's some of the richest real estate in Australia, almost. Um, and and this, these clients had bought four houses on the beachfront of a North, North Shore Sydney. Now, that's some of the most expensive real estate in this country, and Sydney's definitely up there in the world on real estate. And these people were more or less self-sufficient, and they were talking about knocking down two of the houses. <laughs> they were actually designing like, and, and, and all the fences that were hickledy-piggledy all through the system to make an integrated... 3,000 square meters. So that's three quarters of an acre of, of four blocks of land. They've actually just bought a fifth one. And, and that, that means that, you know, this is, this is people who, who definitely can afford to buy a large acreage somewhere, definitely can afford to. They had, they were, they, they, they showed me pictures of their 70 foot carbon fiber yacht. That, that, so that's, that's quite an expensive bit of yacht. Um, but they, they had, they'd converted the swimming pool into a rainbow trout aquaponics system. They got raised gardens all the way through it. They had 14 chickens. They had four woofers living in one of the houses that only had to work four hours a day. They served as a meal on the balcony overlooking a North Shore Sydney beach that was just gorgeous. I mean, a gorgeous meal, absolutely from the property. They wanted to switch off, you know, go on to, to total solar. They've got me to design everything. And their ethics were impeccable on the brief and I'm thinking what is this this is the new this is the new world I mean these are people who don't need to do this but they it's more than one in the food it's the lifestyle the engagement that the, the 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 psychological effect of being involved um and I and I'm I 
it, it was a new one for me. It was a difficult consultancy because it was so much urbanization on a very high level, but then it was they wanted me to break it down back into a three quarter acre block with only one house on it and, and, and literally demolish the other houses or one of them was going to be the top floor was going to be demolished with a large concrete slab put on the top for 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 uh, roof gardens. And then underneath was going to be the workshop because they had bees, they had food processing, all kinds of things going on. Um, and this is not a zone I'd normally work in. This is this is definitely billionaires row, um, but very very beautiful people, just like people you wouldn't recognise as 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 living that normal lifestyle. They were composting. <laughs> Everything was going on. Everything was going on. One of my struggles with, with permaculture, Jeff, is how many people among our ranks seem to view the wealthy as the enemy. Oh, and, no. and, and business as being a bad thing. And everybody wants to do it. Every young person I talk to this in permaculture, I want to do a nonprofit. And I'm like, you know, Mark Shepard once famously quipped that a nonprofit without a profitable entity attached to it is a professional begging organization. That it is good to go out and, and develop systems of value, and then if you want to give back, and if tax-wise doing it as a nonprofit makes sense, then you set that entity up so that you can do that most effectively. But this concept that somehow if a person has money, it's bad, uh, or they're the source of all the problems. We need those people, just like you're talking about, because they're the ones that tell you know their friends. I guarantee you are not the people sitting there going, gee, I wish I had access to land. They're people sitting there with land that can do anything they want to with it. That's right. It's just the way we spend the money. Um, you know, and, and, and Bill often said, you know, when we get to, you know, when we have to spend billions ethically, you know, that's going to be a difficult job for a lot of people. People find <laughs> that hard. Um, but I, I can see a change. I can see a change happening, and everybody wants to leave a legacy um, that's worthwhile. And, and that legacy is is sustainable design and sustainable design education and demonstration sites of some kind. So this is what we're doing in aid uh, as well now. And we're particularly building schools with education demonstration sites and 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 um, systems of um, local enterprise demonstration that's uh, sustainable demonstration and education. So right now uh, we're we're about. Uh, uh, halfway through building a school in Vanuatu uh, in the South Pacific and then we've uh, bought land in Fiji and we're building a uh, local enterprise centre there and demonstration site education centre and the aid organisations I'm working with we either um, raise the funds to buy land or get a 99 year lease so we have time to get the demonstration site up and for it to be permanently in position for people to get the full benefit from. So that's been our policy and um, we're gradually working our way through the Pacific Islands off Australia uh, one by one and um, we're going in fast. We're usually using uh, shipping container uh, buildings initially because they can be um, shipped in, trucked in, dropped in position and we get into business quick that way and later on we can build appropriate buildings for climate but we we just need to get started fast so we've we've um we've got shipping container buildings here as our education um center and um we've got a very good system that is uh, quick deployment we can we can deploy fast um in fact we can deploy in uh, 40 days 
you put an order in, we can get 40 days, we can be on the ground if you really know what you want. Um, and we can orientate our shipping containers and put combinations together that are good enough for each climate. They, they're, they're climate appropriate in the way you assemble them. Um, so right through from tropics to cold climate to desert climates, wherever you are, um, our main imperative right now is speed of deployment. We can't waste any time. So we just got to get on the ground quick. And, and we go in with, you know, um, compost toilets, rebed grey waters, you know, solar panels. Everything comes in the shipping container and then we unpack, build, get teaching, get going, get the land base on, get living systems up around it. Let, let's talk a little bit about Permaculture Circle and, and how this plays out with who it can help. We, we've talked about aid workers. Obviously, it would help with that, people that have that as a goal. Certainly professionals. Uh, and we were talking about small spaces as we went into this segment. I think that, that it'd be incredibly beneficial to a person with, you know, the, the quarter acre lot that wants to, to do that as well. It, it's kind of like it's for all takers. But I think where you've really ramped it up is the person that does have a professional agenda with permaculture really has an incredible credential at the end of this. That's right. Yeah, we've, with our online course, we've now got uh, a digital certificate system where you can um, uh, you get an icon. You can you can you can print it high def if you want to. You can go into Kinkos and and, and print it high, highest definition possible if you want paper. But you've got a digital uh, certificate that's uh, coded. It can't be replicated. It can't be lost. But it also gives you an icon for your website or your email that if you click on it, you can see the credential or you can add your final design exercise or any of your designs that you then go on to do. So it becomes your CV. So you, you can and then we we help people take their design skills up to um, a landscape architect graphic possibility. So from our design exercise lead of, of helping you become a good design a consultant, asking the right questions, we go on to helping you become a very professional designer in the way you present your material. Um, but um, the permaculture circle is actually where we give all our free stuff away. So 95% of everything we do is given away for free. And then uh, the last 5% is where we actually say, well, if you want an education of extreme detail, information and quality, um, this is where we charge for that engagement because that allows us to continue to increase the potential and the quality of what we do and all the films and, the, and videos we make. And then we go on a bit further and say, well, if you want to move on a bit more, you want even more engagement, we offer a premier club. So this is where you get, you know, two hours or so a week of very specialized information every week. Now in that, Every month, I release an AutoCAD um, illustration of one of the new systems we're developing. So you get extremely mm -hmm. accurate graphics, AutoCAD plan with all the measurements, a 3D plus the text uh, explanation, and then one of our famous animations with my voiceover. So you get the information in three ways. And the latest one that I've done is this chicken composting system that creates a living for two people on a quarter of an acre with vegetable growing, vegetable and herb growing systems. And it sits under um, 
shade house frames for the chicken system. So anywhere in the world you have a shade house or polytunnels, these greenhouses, plastic houses that people have worldwide, I'm using those frames for the chicken house and over the gardens as shade in the tropics or, or deserts or as a polytunnel in the cold climates and, 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 and possibly not required in the Mediterranean climates. We're giving all this away to our Premier Club and then a little bit later it will go global. But, you know, they, they get the lead. So I've come up with a, uh, a similar system for a micro-urban chicken compost system that produces a cubic metre every five weeks. But the commercial system produces two cubic metres of compost every week forever. Hmm. Um, so um, there are many things out there that people need to see it as an engineered AutoCAD measurable plan in very high definition graphics that you can literally hand to a builder or an engineer and say, build this. And here's the 3D version of it. Here is the text explanation. Oh, and if you want to get the flavor of it, here's a beautiful animation of the same system. And I'm, and, and it's my voice voicing it over. So we're still working. We're still giving, we're trying to, trying to give out more information for those that want to engage at a higher level. But we know, we know all this stuff's going to leak out in the end. I mean, it, you, 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 you sell everything, but eventually um, to keep yourself moving economically and keep yourself improving with the information you can supply. Um, but in the end, what funds you also becomes free eventually because, you know, sooner or later it leaks <laughs> to the Internet. <laughs> There's nothing that you can put into digitized format that you can ever truly ever own once you do. Like it's it's going to it's going to pollinate at some point, but that, that's a good thing. And I I think that one of the things that I've found encouraging is there seems to be a willingness of people, even when some of that stuff gets out, if it is paid content, to say, hey, like it is it is worth rewarding the person that created this, because if you don't, then that can't continue. It's not sustainable. It's it, it is very much akin to going out and farming a field and never putting anything back. If you keep taking without returning, then what you're taking from eventually will go fallow on you because you can't, you can't sustain yourself. And so I, I've been kind of encouraged with that. And, and we kind of keep coming back to this though, but that, that's that, that, you know, you mentioned a micro uh, urban like chicken composting system. These small systems I think are as much a part of our future. If it's going to be, if it's going to be valid, if it's going to be what we want, if we're going to hit that tipping point, maybe more so, maybe more so than the the, the mid-scale to large-scale systems, at least initially. Definitely. And, and, and the reason I say that is industry, whether you like it or not, responds to consumers. In the end, if the consumer thinks something's important and the consumer is asking for it and the com consumer is willing to pay something for it or a little more for it, then industry will do that. Like industry is not this thing that that basically says, here's what you're getting. They they do that to a degree, but when the consumer says, Well, I don't want that, then industry responds to that. Well if we can get the average homeowner to realize, hey, here's what sheet mulch is, here's a few perennials you can plant. Here's how you can have some sort of poultry in your life, even if your government says you can't have chickens. Here's how you can run a few quail out and actually run them outside. That uh, We've worked on ways to do that. Um, then all of a sudden, the concept when they hear, well, we can't do it, in their head, you know what they think. They think bullshit, right? Like, if I can do it, 
you can do it. And I think if we can get people to understand that, and, and I, I think here's the magic in it. In some ways, it's easier. Because one of the struggles I have, even with a three-acre property, is making myself say, I'm going to develop this area, and I'm going to leave everything else mostly alone, other than managing it with some grazing of the birds and what have you, and I'm going to work on this until this is right. Well, when you have a you know a, a hundred by sixty foot yard, which is big for some of these suburbs, honestly, then if you don't have that problem, right? There it is. That's what you get. And if you'll just work that, then you'll get that result. And when you get that result, it's exciting, and you start sharing it with other people. That's right. Your microsystems are the lesson. We we can only really teach from our small area because that's the only place where we truly control. As soon as you go to a larger area, you're immediately partnering with ecosystems. You're not the complete teacher. But in the micro space, you are the teacher. And as you go out larger and larger, you are less the teacher and more the partner and more the minor partner the further you go in area. And then when you get to the wilderness, you are just the student. You are the visitor. You, you, are, you are not teaching at all in the wilderness. You're just the observer. You're, you're, you're there on a completely different level. So as you come smaller, you come into the truly human space, which is the micro space. And just to uh, reflect on that, I, I, we, we, we do a lot of work in, in refugee camps. And, and the one thing about refugee camps is you're, you're very short on space and you're very short on time. And, 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 and people are very stressed. They've left, you know, they're, they're refugees. They've, they've left their, their, their country under the threat of their life. And, and, and they need something to, to take them out of that scenario to give them some hope. And, and what we found is on one shower sink, on one shower, on one bathroom, gray water, or one sink, kitchen sink, we can run a one square meter reed bed. And that will clean up the water from one family's shower or one family's kitchen sink. That water then can go into a one square meter compost worm farm. <laughs> the water that comes out of that is nutrient rich and will garden one square meter or two square meter or three square meter increments of garden. So we, we extend the garden one square meter container at a time and those are wicking beds. Which is which, which are water tanks full of gravel underneath the garden soil itself. The most uh, water um, uh, efficient way to garden possible because the water is away from the sun below the soil, wicking up through, and it's got an overflow. So one overflows to the next, and the nutrient is supplied from the waste stream of the food going into the worm farm. The waste coming out of the house is simply grey water. And you just have to make the arrangement that you have to use biological products. That's easy enough, right? Biological soaps, um, food, food scraps that are coming out of the sink and things like that. That's all biological anyway. So you, you've got a, uh, something that receives uh, your waste streams as in food scraps. You've got something that, that, that cleans up your grey water. That nutrient combination goes into your wicking bed and soaks up. As, as capillary action into your crops, and they are then gardening. Now, when you translate that back into an urban space, you've again got, got minimum space, minimum time, maximum efficiency of nutrient-dense food. And often that's all you need is the hook. When people get that taste, after a while, when, they, when their bodies respond to that nutrient density in the food, that incredibly fresh, local, right-in-their-garden food, 
they start to expand their thinking. Hey, maybe I could do a bit more. Maybe I could plant an espalier fruit tree. Maybe I could do something. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Hope, hope, hope grows from, from small things. And, and, you know, on the small space, like just to give you an example of some of the stuff we've done here, I learned about a plant from you called Ipamira aquatica, right? Mm-hmm. Thai water spinach, there's a lot of names for it. Uh, on choy, tons of different names. I managed to get some seeds from uh, a seller on eBay, and I started growing that in some of the aquatic systems we have here, all contained because it's a no-no to let it out in the ecosystem here. Um, even though our winters will kill it dead, and it's you're, they're basically regulating the entire state as though we all live south of Houston is, is the way they're doing it. But... I started growing it, and I put it in one of my wiki, or not wiki beds, my ebb and flow beds in one of my aquaponics systems. Now, this is a, to give you an idea of this, this is a 14-gallon concrete mixing tray that we turned into an ebb and flow bed. And I kind of let that one go as I was managing everything else. And the one day I needed to do some work on is the last row, and it's up against the thing inside my aviary, and I couldn't, I couldn't get in there because there was so much of it, I couldn't. I could not get into access the valve that I needed to work on. So I took a machete to it and I cut it out and I ended up with a wheelbarrow full of this stuff. And I'm like, I can't eat that much of this. So I took it out and I gave it to the ducks. The ducks loved it. So after that, I'm like, well, I need to keep cutting this. And I was cutting a wheelbarrow full of Ipamira aquatica, feeding it to my ducks about every two and a half to three weeks all summer long and it was coming out of a single 14-gallon uh, ebb and flow bed. Now, I know not everything has that kind of a growth rate, but if you can't significantly contribute to your diet off a few square meters, I just think you're not doing it right. Yeah, I mean, uh, they also call it Kang Kong is a co- common name for it. Fastest growing leaf crop in the world. Um, and... Um, much, much more nutritious than lettuce. I mean, you wouldn't even think about eating lettuce if you had that as a comparison. Um, and, and, yeah, you just need a, a, a decent sort of um, glass house to, to, to a warmer temperature and off you go. Um, and there are so many like that. There are so um, there's, there's 800 times more diversity in our potential food crops worldwide than there has ever been. And, and interestingly, the diversity of the world has increased almost at that same rate of all species. Interesting book for people to read, The Inheritors of Earth by Chris D. Thomas, middle initial D, uh, came out in 2016, um, talking about the diversity increase worldwide and, and, and debating extinction. Um, very interesting what we as humans have done by spreading diversity that, other, that people generally worry about, and we've done it intentionally and unintentionally, and we still continue to diversify the world. I'll just repeat that. Every single bit of this planet, every single land, every single continent, every single country is more diverse in species right now than it has ever been. Yes, there's been mm. one or two extinctions, but the imports have increased diversity. So just imagine the fail-safe side of nature right now if it wants to respond and fill all the gaps. Very interesting. I, 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 it, it came out after Bill passed, but while I was reading it, I could hear Bill laughing as if, if he got to, he would have loved this book. He would have laughed his way through the whole thing. I can guarantee it. <laughs> it, it is amazing because we've been led to believe the exact opposite. 
that we've we've lost diversity of, of species and plant life, etc. And I, I know we've lost certain things, but in the end, I do think because I think because humans have become so mobile, and because almost every species, like we talk about pioneer species, so I'd be interested when you, when you think about this. We, we talk about pioneer species, the, the stuff that's tough that can get in and do the job that others can't, that pave the way for something else. But I almost feel like every species is a pioneer species somewhere. So it, it's not that, you know, you have this one species, because some of them are really tough, like dandelions, you, you, your rose guard, your pH goes off and the rose petals fall off. Dandelions, like in the middle of asphalt, going, all right, here I am, I'm growing. But it, it does seem to me like, maybe not every species, but most species, there's somewhere that they are the pioneer. Yeah, there's some place and time niche. It's a place and a time niche. So sometimes they're in the right place, but the time niche is wrong, and they tag somebody else, like a wrestler tagging a match. So and, and there's a tag, tag element that comes in and goes, okay, you, you're stepping out the ring, I'm stepping in. There's always something to jump in. Um, where we, where, and, uh, and in the Inheritors of Earth, this book I'm referencing, that where we have a little bit of variation is, is are island exclusions, where things speciate to islands, they kind of get lazy. You know, birds on islands mm. eventually without predators go flightless. And then continental species tend to have an advantage because they've always had a, a continental diversity of com competition. Um, there's an interesting thing here about competition and diversity and, and, and where you're on a secluded position, you, you become more vulnerable because you speciate to the sort of um, the lack of danger on an island. So if you isolate yourself too much and you're not connected to the larger continental diversity, and, and there's probably a human analogy I could think of here somehow. You know, if we run away and become a community of an exclusion, we would probably become vulnerable. When we stay in the middle of the city and become a permaculture diverse community, we're probably much more stable. Now, interestingly, you know, people are always talking about, oh, I want to run away and hide. Well, you're probably going to make yourself more vulnerable. But if you say, no, I want to go into the city, and I'm going to change the middle of the city like some of these great inner city heroes do, you're probably going to be more resilient. You know, so it's, it, it's kind of, I, I like to make those analogies between people and nature and nature and people, and then it sort of feels personal. Um, but I'm still, I'm still breaking that book down, and I'm still reflecting on it because it was uh, one of those page turners, you know. Because you do wonder what, what habitats you would create if we, you know, everybody looks at Davis, California. I can't remember the name of the development out there, but that's kind of, that kind of is an island, so to, so to say, in a way. Um, it's amazing, but it's still kind of islandish in, in being walled off. But if you took a whole neighborhood and transformed it through, you know, urban permaculture, what would happen? You're talking about the frogs at your desert site. Nowhere near to the scale, but we put in these little 500-gallon stock tank ponds here, and two years later, we have bullfrogs as big as my hands in them. <laughs> there's, no wa there's no water here for at least two miles. Yeah. And a, it, it's not a toad. It's a bullfrog. This is an aquatic frog. How that, you know, and I, I can tell you it's the year that I think it happened. We had... We usually are very dry in our springs, but we had a May with a, a El Nino came in, and we had 27 days of significant rainfall in just May, and there was like minor flooding everywhere. And I think that's when they showed up, but because there was a place to go, you know, they 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 stayed and they they started breeding. We have breeding bullfrogs in a stock tank. Um, if you had a neighborhood like some of these 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 neighborhoods in like Detroit where these houses are a couple thousand bucks. 
and somebody went in and, and, and went in and did 30 or 40 or 50 properties in basic, simple urban permaculture, you wonder what birds would be in the trees in three years. You wonder what frogs would be under the rock or what insect, uh, especially because most insects are actually beneficial. The pest is the minority. What, what would be there in just two or three years? Yeah. Yeah, birds fly them in sometimes when the frog frog legs and you know, frogs spawn on their on their feet accidentally sometimes and yeah I'm, I mean allopathic or, or ah. pet species are only five percent you know uh, you know fifteen percent are, are very positive and and eighty percent are kind of neutral um, on average you know it's, it, you can go that's on plants on animals on you know on everything in the ecosystem you know it's a small it's a small uh, percentages are actually um, negative, but uh, village homes. You're talking about village homes. That's it. California. Um, I visited there, and it was like a pilgrimage for me. I've never seen anything like it. You know, 40 years of fruit growing in the in in the streets, and 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 the whole suburbs built around swales, water soaked systems on contour, and then so it was water first because um, that relates to the landscape form and then then the the access as the roadways and then the structures of the houses and it was all sensibly built uh, iconic iconic it should be global i can't understand why there isn't more of it but i got to interview david corbett who 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 who's the architect amazing man he he never flew he didn't fly because when he was at school in America, uh, his football team went down in a, in a plane crash and he had an aversion of flying. So that maybe slowed the promotion of it. But I was had a wonderful interview with, with, with David. I never released this section of the interview, and I, I, I should do, but uh, he told me a very interesting story I hadn't heard of. In, in, in the climate change variations that have happened, the city of Davis flies. And there wasn't the, the stormwater mitigation systems to release the water out of the city. So um, it was a real problem because it wasn't civil engineered to sort of drain the water out. And someone come up with the idea that, okay, village homes, 80-odd acres of village homes, is actually set up on the system where it's connected to stormwater, but it, it, it sort of, it's got these little little lock gates that, allows the water to hold up in, 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 in village homes and soak in. And, and someone thought, right, why don't we just open the lock gates and let a lot of water go into village homes because these swells will, will, will absorb a bit of water. And, and that they did. They opened up these little tiny lock gates and let the water fill the swells in, Dav- and, in village homes. And village homes sucked David Davis dry. Village homes sucked the whole city. It all went into village homes and went in and sucked in, and it became the sponge of the whole city. And just, just imagine if the whole city everywhere was, was, was designed that way. You would never have any floods and you would never have any droughts. And that's set up by human settlement, and the runoff from human settlement becomes the positive instead of the negative. Um, listeners, if you are hearing this, I mean, really, I mean, it is an icon of all time, and it's quite dated now. It's over 40 years old. I mean, we can do it better. They didn't do the grey water. They didn't do the black water. That could add to this situation. I have never, ever tasted fruit like the fruit in village homes, Davis, and I have never been anywhere with so much fruit on the ground either not being used, which is an icon as well. I had to clean fruit off my feet 
I went there in August. <laughs> I had to clean. I had, I had like mud on your feet. You know, you get mud plastered on your feet. I had figs on my feet like that. I had fruit on my feet. But the food, the, I, I taste a lot of fruit in front of a camera. But every single, every single piece of fruit I put in my mouth in, in village homes, I wanted to eat more. It, it, I'm sure it's the nutrient density from the, the tree roots chasing that water absorption from the swales down into that deep, deep strata and being full of minerals. You know, um, yeah, I, I would do anything to help that system extend globally. That's what humanity needs. It, the, the, the confusion for me and why it doesn't isn't just, okay, well, it's wonderful. But look at if you wanted to, like if somebody there finally decided to leave or passed away and their house went up for sale. Look at what that house would sell for compared to a house of the same square footage across the street. It, it, so the, the thing that people always bring up is you know property value, property value, property value. The value of that from a pure economic standpoint is, I, I believe the number I heard was three times comparable housing in the same area. And on top of it, you're surrounded by food and nature. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me other than when I do look at the regulatory hurdles in some situations, and then, you know, builders are out to make a buck, and you're trying to build the house for as little upfront cost as possible for entry-level housing and all, but it, it seems like a lot of this stuff could be retrofitted. It, it, it may not be, it, you know, with not, not letting perfect be the enemy of the good, the house may not have, you know, an earthen roof or whatever, but it seems like we could do 80% of this, 70% of this, in almost any subdivision in America as a retrofit. Definitely. You could definitely retrofit. It's a big industry of the future retrofitting what we've got because it's a mess and it needs to be have a good energy audit on it. Um, one of the issues may be the real estate turnover is very low. Um, mm. that, so there's only 2% of the homes turnover in, 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 in village homes because nobody wants to leave. Well, that's a good gauge of, of a stable <laughs> community. So the, the real estate agencies need to look at, well, maybe we need to phase ourselves out. Or maybe you can see the sustainability of a, of a, of a town or a city when there's less need for real estate agents because nobody wants to, to leave anywhere. They want to pass on the inheritance, you know, generation, generation even. But... Um, that's the only drawback I can see. Um, but the real estate agents that are listening to this need to realize that you need to be the cutting edge and put these systems in now because the money's to be made now. <laughs> and yeah. We're going to design sustainable systems. We're going we're gonna to energy audit everything. We're going to sell on, on the fact that you need less energy to run this system and you won't want to leave. And, and, and you're going to need to ride that cutting edge. Um, because that has to be the future. You can't just keep turning over unsustainable housing. Um, so um, it, 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 it's, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, we're going to be many generations retrofitting what we've got. Um, we can't afford to pull it all down. Uh, just the water alone. The wa the, like the way cities are designed is the antithesis to life when it comes to water. All the water goes into a drain and goes away. And, and it's... It, 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 you understand, I guess, how it got that way with engineers not wanting people's houses to flood, I, you know, and what have you. We have to do something with it. We have all this hard catchment, and what do we do? But then you look at a simple solution like what Brad, Brad Lancaster's done in Arizona. Like cut a hole in the curb and direct the water into the, 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 the nature strip and mulch a tree and 
Jeff, did you know when you give trees water, they grow faster? <laughs> they actually do? I mean, I know it's craziness. And then when you have trees, you have this stuff called shade. And when you have shade, you have less evaporation and cooler temperatures and a more moderated climate. That's, I, I know that's like crazy talk. But, you know, that was started by a guy that got a concrete saw and, and went a little anarchism and cut some curbs out. And they didn't ask permission. They didn't even ask forgiveness. They just got away with it as long as they could. And my understanding is that new developments in Tucson are being forced to implement this type of, of very simple uh, water catchment. And, and you have to ask yourself, why the heck would somebody in the middle of a desert want water to go away? It, 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 it doesn't make sense. It does, because you've said, in a desert, you design to a flood. Yeah. Well... How do you design? Like, you design to a flood to, to conserve the water in the ground, and they design to a flood to make sure that people don't get flooded, but your methodology, the permaculture way, works the same, the same way. It prevents flooding. I've had people, when I put in the swales that are on about three-quarters of an acre on my property, my neighbors were a little concerned that it would flood out their property. And, you know, and I'll tell you a funny story. The day we put it in, we had a workshop. We had students here, and we had rain coming in. And we're trying to get this excavator off this clay soil before the rain hits. And it, it, the, it's, it's getting dark. The machine literally pulls onto the driveway and puts the boom down, and <laughs> the rain comes. And the swales, because they were fresh, they just filled. We got an inch and a half of rain in about 35 minutes. I think it might be the only workshop where you've ever had a place where the swales were put in, the students got to see them work immediately. But it was dark, so some guy hands me a flashlight and goes, go take a look at your swales. So I go out, and I shine the light across the first one in the, in the three-swale set, and it looks, like a, it looks like a lake in the neighbor's yard. And I'm like, no, no, I didn't do this, did I? And what it was, they had a concrete slab, and it was just the water on the slab looked like it was flooded. They worked perfectly, and they filled like that. And, and what you're talking about with, with land being able to pull more water in, and you know my place, it's rock everywhere. And yet, now when we get an inch of rain the swales don't even begin to fill because the, the land has gotten so thirsty and so good at taking the water in. Now we have to get closer to like a two-inch rain event before I get discharged out of the swales, where before it was three-quarters to an inch. And I know I did the calculations right because when I looked at the volume of the swales and the hard catchment and then the, the runoff of the soft catchment and calculated it, I said initially, this is going to be one inch of rain will fill these things. Well, what I've learned over the years is that's when you put it in. And over time, that number actually goes down, and the land can take more, not less water, which is, it's kind of insane on its face, but it's the way, all I can tell you is it's the way that it's worked here. Trees, that, you know, as the trees grow in the swells, because swells are tree-growing systems majorly, the trees increase the function. So same with Davis, you know, Village Homes Davis. I mean, they were the only site that I know of that actually put measuring um, equipment in. So they put in persometers um, to gauge the um, the dampness of the soil. And uh, this is a 14-inch rainfall in, in, in Davis, California. So Village Homes put these persometers in. 
but they only measured for three years because something really unusual happened. With all the roads running off, all the houses running off the water tanks and the overflows, all going toward, directed towards swales, the absorption dampened the soil. Now, a lot of people say to me in these Mediterranean zones, particularly California, what's the point in putting in swales? Because it rains in winter and we grow in summer when we have no rain. But they don't realize <laughs> that it extends over time. Now, Bill used to say that it took seven years to get full infiltration. Most of it comes in the first three to four years, and then it tapers off, still gradually increasing to seven. Then you don't get any more than seven. But after that, every time you get full inundation, you're recharging the aquifers very significantly. So the persometers measured like this. In the first 12 months, they got three feet of dampened soil. Now, that soil stays damp even through the hot, dry Californian Mediterranean summer climate. But the second year, that three feet extended to eight feet. And in the third year, they got 17 feet of dampened soil under the swells and more or less under the whole subdivision. Now, at that point, they stopped measuring because there wasn't any point. Because once you've got 17 feet of dampened soil in that climate, you can grow anything any tree within the temperature range the only thing that's stopping you now is the air temperature range because you've got everything you need in the soil and all the life root interaction that's going to then go on indefinitely as long as they stay in position and of course they stay in position if you've got a subdivision direct in it because the roads are on the ridges the houses are on the ridges that are just formed by the swells the landscape in, in village homes davis was dead flat it had a very slight fall I was only one of the only people that when I visited it, I think, actually filmed the property across the road that's still a cornfield exactly as, as Village Homes was before they started. That was significant. I started my video by walking across this dusty, dry, flat, plowed cornfield and then walked across the road in Village Homes, which just is like an oasis of humanity, uh, like dripping with food and, and happy people. I mean, it's like, this is another world. This is another world from flat to this. I mean, flat's great. I love flats. Easy. You know, uh, if you want to do subdivision, that's what everybody goes for. But people think flat's something you can't design. Flat, flat changes more. Design changes flat more than it does anything. You know, so yeah, amazing. You know, here's what I always tell people when they say, well, I can't do swales. My land's totally flat. I'm like, so if you take your dog's water dish and you set it out on your yard, and you put a garden hose in it, you turn it on low, and you fill it up, you're telling me that it, it, it overflows completely evenly all the way around the rim. It doesn't overflow to one side. We're like, no, it overflows to one side. Well, then your land is not level over one foot, right? It's, it's, it's flat, but it's not level, and water's going to flow somewhere, and when it flows somewhere, it's always going to be, as you say, right angle to contour, which means down, and that gives us the opportunity to then channel it to where we want it to go and to hold it. And in these dry climates, like, you know, I have like, I have like a wet climate and a dry climate, depending on what, what year it is and what time of year it is. But when you get that water, it is much easier to hold that water in soil than it is to try to hold it in a dam or a pond because there's a lot more evaporation in that situation. And you can only hold so much in a pond. How much you can hold in the earth is almost not not completely, but almost limitless. You know, there's a lot of earth before you run out of earth, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, the, 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 the dollar for volume in relation to swales and soil rehydration 
is 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 enormous compared to holding it in 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 an impoundment where you can see the water, which is nice. But when in the soil you can't see it, you see the response, but you don't actually see it. You have to trust that you're going to get the response, and this is time related. And and you know, sustainable human habitat is probably mostly around seventy percent forested, and 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 the knowledge is passed on generationally. So we have to go from generation to generation to understand that, and that's what we have to protect. But um, it, it comes from understanding that rehydration, and, and it can come from <laughs> right at the beginning. If you're looking at those wicking beds, they work because the water's sitting in gravel with a membrane between the gravel and the soil, but the soil's above the water, just like a swale. It, it's it's almost a wicking bed is almost an imitation of a swale in a little. Um, container garden but you know from from this tiny three foot by three foot garden uh, we see the action of a swale that we've engineered and then we just extend that over the the form of the landscape and then we pattern and then we start to get in a pattern and we're patterning in relation to the landscape form so flat or steep or wherever we're just paying very close attention to the patterns and 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 it's the patterns of life that make us go back into a feeling of wonder, like like we're in a state of wonder when we start to engage with the patterns of life, patterns of form, uh, patterns of, of energy absorption. Um, it's the opposite to hard engineering, where these engineers, they, they drain the water off on, the, on the, the, the shortest, fastest, direct, frictionless route. Uh, that, that's the engineering way, you know, move it as quickly as possible, uh, with the minimum amount of friction um, as fast as possible. But we're generally going to go, we want the slowest, longest, most passive route with the most passive friction rubbing up against as many living things along the way is going to give us the most fertile life response. Um, hard engineers and life systems, they're kind of opposite opposite sciences and they need to marry together. You find a lot of young permaculture academics are studying civil engineering and ecology at the same time. They're trying to make that marriage happen and, and I think it is happening. We definitely need that because the engineer is not the enemy. The engineer is building the system that society told them to and school taught them to. And the engineer is the greatest ally we can have because you know, if I'm doing something on my own property or I'm doing something with somebody where, you know, we're going to put in a pond that's, you know, I don't know, a tenth of an acre or something, I'll do that on my own. I'm not, I'm not afraid of that. But if I'm going to go put in a four-acre dam, right, or I'm going to go in, I, I want some engineering expertise to at least, even if I come up with the design myself, I want somebody to run the numbers and check it to make sure I haven't screwed something up. I don't want to send, you know, a couple hundred million gallons of water down into a town. And we need engineers because they're good at this, but it's a lot like, you know, you've mentioned equipment operators. Equipment operators generally have a pretty boring job. When you get them into a permaculture yeah. project, especially if they're good, and once they know what you want, then that artist in them is able to come out. And they do amazing things, and they enjoy it. And I think we can do the same thing with engineers. Yeah, there's actually there's many engineers in, in permaculture. Um, I'm I'm 
uh, originally a mechanical engineer. So is Ramis Kent, one of my directors. Uh, but one of the great engineering couples of the permaculture world are, are, are Rob and Michelle Avis in Calgary, Cal- California, Verge Permaculture. So they're really working on the cutting edge of systems that can use the engineering as an advantage to permaculture, all kinds of software systems for water calculations, water absorption systems, greenhouse heating systems. It's wonderful to see engineering and permaculture married together with so much passion and expertise and giving away so much information to people. Check it out. Awesome stuff, Jeff. So, and the, I mean, the other place people should check out is jefflawtononline.com. You mentioned this uh, permaculture circle course, which is awesome. That that runs in cycles, though. Like, do people have to wait to sign up for that? Can they sign up at any time? How, how exactly does that work? We're just closing off our first version two, and we'll be back to release the um, next course because it's uh, an event that we go through together. Um, it's not live. You've got all the time in the world to do it, but it'll be uh, an event together with people from all across America, all across the world. Um, and it will be early in 2018. We'll be doing the next release. So if you join on Permaculture Circle, you'll see all those events as they release and you see any any uh, pre-launch uh, bonuses or anything else that we have to offer. So all the information comes in there, um, as well as, of course, um, um, the uh, permaculturenews.com. Um, permaculturenews.org, should I say, they're, they're, they're our main website. But Permaculture Circle is where you get all the cutting-edge stuff for free and all the free videos and any any news release about the next course and when it starts. You'll see the lead-up. And I'll, I'll tell you guys, it, it was Jeff that, that basically flipped the permaculture switch in me. The first thing I ever saw on permaculture, Jeff, was greening the desert which production value compared to today and what you do is, you know, night and day, times spades, right? But that switched me on to what was possible. And, folks, if you want that experience for yourself, get over to jefflawtononline.com. Check out the free videos. The the free videos there alone are, are things that, you know, I think most people would be uh, making a commercial product out of because they're that good. And uh, get switched on because once you get switched on to this stuff, Personally, Jeff, this is the way I feel. It permeates your entire life. We do do a lot of focus on, you know, waste systems, agricultural systems, etc. But I don't think you can become educated about permaculture and then not have that pattern recognition and that systems thinking invade every other part of your life. That's right. Yeah, you, you're you're infected with design, and it becomes your. Um, it becomes something that you you get great advantage from. It, it, it improves your psychological approach. You you, you gain um, energy because you can see hope. Um, and um, many many actually, I've had um, students come to me and said, I I I work in psychological health, and um, many farmers and farmers' sons who are considering suicide <laughs> have. Um, um, been helped and 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 gone on um, with good health psychologically because they've been introduced to green in the desert. Green in the desert has been used to to help people with um, when when they've been considering suicide because everything's been so helpful, uh, hopeless. And there's an oh, there is another way to do things. And I've also had returned veteran soldiers in tears 
in front of me saying, like, I was considering suicide and I found permaculture and I knew there was something I could put my energy in and something I could put my focus in and, and, and I don't consider that and I've got a new life, thank you. And they've been in tears in front of me. It's quite humbling. You know? It's like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm just so pleased I've been able to help people that way and we can all do that. We can all, we can all do this. Um, it's, uh, it's a terrible thing when people are considering taking their life and then they see, but then it's wonderful to say, look, there's another way you can approach things. And this, this gives you great, great energy to know that you, you know, there's another way we can do it. And there is hope out there. I, I can vouch for the fact that that happens. I've been told that by numerous people. Uh, one man even told me there was a day he laid in bed with a gun in his mouth. And it was this type of thing. He thought about his kids and he thought about, you know, the fact that there is something more, and, and but it's what he found that grounded him and changed his life and turned it around. And so that's how important this is. It's not just about saving humanity. It's about saving individual humans, and, and, and that's huge. And, Jeff, thank you for being with us. Thank you for serving on the Expert Council. Thank you for your service to our, to our, our, our community as a whole, and thank you for your service to the planet, man. I mean, j just like there is no one out there that you're not helping, even if they don't know it directly. One way or another, all systems link together, and I appreciate you for the work that you do. Thanks, Jack. You too. Keep up the great work yourself. It's quite fantastic service you're doing with this podcast. Thank you again. Have a great day, man. I know you got a lot of stuff to get back to. Thanks. All right, guys, it was great having Jeff on. We did have to work through some te technical gremlins. There might have been a, a fade out here or there, and we actually had to reconnect the call like five times to get it done. But I think overall that car call, like everything I've ever done with Jeff, is just pure gold, and I appreciate him for being on the air. If you appreciate me having people like Jeff Lawton on the air so that you can uh, hear from them and even ask them direct questions and get your answers, and if you appreciate the content that we're putting out every day, You know, you can support us in a completely painless way. Most of you probably buy stuff online all the time. And if you go to tspaz.com before you do that, you'll help support the show and the work that we do. Again, just go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. If you do that, um, you'll help support us no matter what you buy. And that's just a great way to do things. And the other thing you'll do is you'll find our reviews for our items of the day uh, for reviews of products on Amazon. And I've got a great one for you today. It's the Mason Tops Complete Mason Jar Fermentation Kit. This is if you want to get started in fermenting foods, this is probably the best overall kit that I can recommend for you. It's got these little silicon tops that go on top of your mason jars, and wide mouth jars are the ones I recommend. You can get them in either size. So you just take that mason jar, and you take that little disc that's in the center of the canning lid, and you just don't put that on there. You put the little silicon deal on, you put the ring back on, you've got a fermenter. It also comes with a packer, and it comes with some stuff they call them pebbles. Pebbles are just basically these little round glass pucks. What does the little round glass puck do for you? There's a saying in fermentation, and it's a really simple thing, and if you do it, it just works out that way, and you don't have to be all fussy and worried about things. And it is, keep it under the brine, and everything will be fine. So when you've got your fermentation vessel going, you've got your vegetables being fermented, As long as everything in there is underneath the, the liquid level, under the brine, it will all be fine. And that's what these pebbles do. It's a great job of keeping stuff weighted down. Really, really simple. Really, really cool. And if you just look at this thing, when you look at the review, if you have someone in your life that's been wanting to get into doing this, or maybe is doing it but would like maybe to have a little bit better results with it, it makes a great gift. 
It just looks cool, let alone it is cool. Uh, you can check it out. Again, it's called the Mason Tops Complete Mason Jar Fermentation Kit. You can find it at tspaz.com by pulling up our most recent reviews. And remember, on the all-new tspaz, you have category uh, links to everything that I've ever reviewed at tspaz.com. With that, let's get into our uh, song of the day. Our song of the day today is one I, I hadn't really thought about doing. I'm just why I have John Adam out there. I actually like this song a lot, and I love the artist. I've played a lot of music from this artist to you over the years uh, with songs like uh, Tangled Up in You being, being, uh, being among my favorite, and that artist, of course, is Aaron Lewis. This is Aaron Lewis kind of taking a shot at modern country music. The song is called That Ain't Country. And when, when, when Aaron came out with this song, he said things like people like uh, Sam somebody, I don't know, Luke Bryan, are basically strangling country music with their crap. And, and i, I got to tell you, I kind of feel the same way. I think my problem with people like Luke Bryan isn't just the music that they're making is crap, because some of it is, and some of it's not so bad in of itself. I think they're fake. I think they're fake-ass people. And I think what always made country music great is, is the country artists were the real people. And there's, there's a lot of that sentiment in this song. You know, basically he's saying like everything's all hunky dory and happy and country now is one of the criticisms that you'll hear in this song. But my life ain't like that. And you know, there's the old joke about country music. They used to say like, well, what happened? It's a critic's joke, you know? If you play country music backwards, what happens? Well, you get your wife back, your dog back, your truck back, your house back, your farm back, your dog back, right? Okay. That, and I guess maybe there is some truth in that, 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 that basically that shot that's a form of criticism. The country, especially classic country was full of, you know, hardship. But you know what? Life is full of hardship. And classic country wasn't only full of hardship. There was a lot of good, partying, happy music, too, in old country. But it was grounded in the fact that it's about real life. And I think we've lost a lot of that. And country music's become very formulaic. And I don't actually have a problem with the type of music that country artists are producing today. I just kind of agree with Aaron Lewis. That ain't country. If you want to do music like that, go ahead and call it what it is. Pop music. That's what it is. I mean, that ain't country. And if you think it is, well, you probably have never owned a Waylon Jennings album, and you probably listened to Luke Bryan. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.